This is the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities where we were doing this rep. That's awesome. Um, and that's another one where I'm directing, acting, and fight directing. So I got a lot of irons in the pot there. Right. <laughs> um, and a lot of investment. And not only did we lose that, but within 48 hours, by the time we got to Monday, both Jess and I had lost the entirety of all the work we'd scheduled through the end of the year, which totaled out to about a hundred grand. So a couple days. In two days, um, everything from to December 31st was gone. Oh, Hi, you're listening to the Reinvention Podcast. I'm Aaron Anderson, and I'm here with award-winning actor, director, fight director, and teacher Jeffrey Kent. Uh, Jeff, how you doing today, man? I'm doing all right. Where I'm ready to bring this year to a close. <laughs> so uh, uh, you and I have known each other for a number of years, and I really appreciate your friendship. You are also, you and your lovely wife, Jessica, are also professional actors, directors, fight directors. You've been working full-time professionally in the arts for a number of years. And I think probably a lot of people don't understand how hard that really is. And so that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, from that perspective, sort of the before times, the shutdown times, and what the, I don't know, what the possible hope for the future is. Yeah. Well, before times, I think it's always worth for people who don't know what kind of freelance artists like is work like. Most artists know, but the rest of us might not. My mom certainly is always confused. <laughs> is it... I kind of try to explain to people like if if you you have a job that pays your bills that you that gets a roof over your head, food in your mouth and and whatever other luxury items you can afford and that job is a job you applied for um with your skills and interviewed and as a freelance artist you're essentially doing that every 6 to 8 weeks for your entire life. Is, so you're you're applying for a new job all the time. Yeah, so essentially you know like all theater contracts end, right? But theater is ephemeral. It's one of the things I love about it is that it you get together, you collaborate, you create, you share, and then it goes away. And then you do another one. And usually you're you're stacking them up. So while you're on one, you're always looking for the next. Or if you're lucky to have a next, you're looking for the next after that. In the case of Jessica and I, the way we have found to make it work so that we can own a home and, and have some sort of stability in our lives, at least pre-COVID, was to diversify. So I fight to direct. Mm -hmm. um, I act. I direct professional theater and I teach theatrical skills, stage combat and Shakespeare right. primarily. But you don't have and, a um, you don't have like a full time university or, or college I, or high school nope. or anything kind of gig. You are full on entrepreneurial uh, gig work, all that. Yeah, stuff. I'm a I'm a business of myself. Right. Um, but what you know what makes it challenging is I'm a remora and I exist off of professional theater with my multiple skills. Right. Right. So. I require the host organism to be healthy. Um, and when the host organism is healthy, it's it's fairly doable with the diverse portfolio that both Jess and I are able to do. She's similar. She's an actor, playwright, improviser, instructor. Right. Um, so before the world hit the fan, it, we had some pretty crazy days where we would like almost pass each other on the highway and be able to wave as we sprinted between our various jobs. Because I can pretty easily in a given day work in all four of my fields in four different locations. Right. Well, and so a lot of, a lot of people that I know who work in the arts um, live in some very specific cities, right? So they live in New York or they live in Los Angeles or they live in Chicago. Some very few live in D.C., but they live in highly dense uh, populations. But you are um, – you're in Denver. Yeah, that's my home. So it's not um, – it's not one of the major urban areas where you can take the subway, go get the job and come back. You're, you're having to drive a long way. Yeah, and also you have to crack a regular job at the big theaters near you that is fairly consistent. So whereas my friends in New York can cycle between not only all of the opportunities that exist for theater and film and TV in New York, they also, most shows, book actors out of New York. Right. Um, so for me, it's more important that in the local theaters, Colorado Shakespeare Festival, Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities, and the Denver Center for the Performing Arts – are the three theaters that pay a living wage to actors. Right. Um, so it's important for me to have strong relationships with all three of those because at any given point, only one of them has something for me and I want to be in a position to do that thing. As a director, um, I work at those places, but I also work nationally to do that. And then as a fight director, I certainly work all over the country. Um, and so the, I spend a lot of time at the airport and you know, I was at uh, Utah Shakespeare Festival two seasons ago. 
I, at Utah Shakespeare Festival, I was playing John Talbot and Henry VI Part One. Few people know Henry VI Part One, right. but John Talbot and Joan of Arc are the main characters of that play and are eternally in conflict with right. one another. Um, and neither of them escape it alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was doing Merry Wives of Windsor, playing Master Ford, and we were doing—I was doing Merchant of Venice, playing Aragon, one of this one of those one-scene clown roles. Right. So you're you're like the character in the dresser. Right. The, 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 the guy who's in the theater his whole life. Stop that train. All that. You're just you're working. You're living in the theater. You're grinding out. Uh, but but they're but they're quite prestigious roles. I mean, they're Shakespearean roles. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge of capturing, you know, it's Rickman who said, you know, once that it's really an, it's a doing Shakespeare's like chasing the horizon. You'll never catch it. You're just chasing it because the act of chasing it is what is so exciting. You know. Right. Um, uh, I recently watched that Michael Jordan 10 part documentary. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah it was great. Right. One of the, the last things dance. That, yeah. And one of the things, you know, while it was very celebratory of him partially produced by him, right. I, I also found it to be that combination of talent and work ethic, right. Mm -hmm. That you just, that's pretty unparalleled. He's here's someone who has natural talent better than many, any player on the field. And also is the first to practice and the last to leave. And the combination of those two things is pretty unbeatable. Yeah. Well, so, so Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say you're, so you are actually living, when I first started in theater, I think a lot of people, I say the dresser, but I, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a archetype of the working actor working in Shakespeare, um, you know, doing these things, um, which is, which is different than the person who makes a breakout role on television or, or something like that. It's like the, the, what's the saying in theater, you can, you can make a killing, but it's hard to make a living, right? That's mm -hmm. sort of that, that daily grind. Um, so you are living what I thought was the ultimate dream. But um, I want to talk about sort of the reality of that. So what was that like <laughs> on a daily basis? Like talk me through a day in the life of Jeff and Jessica. Uh, well, I think a good – Jess and I were just talking about what Saturdays used to be like. And for us, a typical Saturday was was generally teaching a class at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts in the morning. For me, it would either be a three-hour stage combat certification class that met from like 9 a.m. to noon. Okay. Um, and how far away is that would, from your house? Uh, about 15 minutes. These okay. two, the, the upside is I have this, this, our home, which I purchased back when I had a day job and wasn't really realizing I'd have a life in theater is equidistant between the two major theaters in Colorado and the two biggest theaters within a thousand miles. And I lived 12 minute drives from both of them. Good thing. Um, which is just luck. Uh, yeah. But you you would go off to do that class, teach that class. Then you would dart back to make it to our Vada Center to, let's say, I would have a matinee. So I would get there, do fight call, and do, you know, a production of Sense and Sensibility. As an actor. Um, yeah, as an actor. So you start Colonel the day, Brandon. you start the day, you get up, you go teach a class, you go across town, and now you're an actor. Yeah, but once the matinee was over, I would then frequently jump in my car and drive back to the Denver Center to do a fight rehearsal for a show that was in tech there. For a different show. Um, completely different show, completely different company. So I would like sprint back. They were doing a like experimental Macbeth that I was coming in to try and help last minute. So I would rehearse with them I, for the I'd have a 30 minute car drive between the two. I'd have 60 minutes of them and 30 minutes to get back to either do another productive performance or Frequently, I direct there, so I might then moving, be moving into an evening tech of, uh, let's Murder on the Orient Express, the last show I did. Right, so which was gorgeous. That's, yeah, wow, that show is so beautiful. Um, but yeah, so I would basically teach in the morning, act in the afternoon, fight direct on my dinner break, and then direct when I got back. Um, and all of that in one day, and that's a hell of a day. That doesn't happen and, often, but it does happen routinely. And then Jessica is <laughs> also doing something in parallel, and you guys are passing in the hall. Oh, all the time. And she's also a coach. So what she would often do on the dinner break is a student would also come and meet her at the Arvada Center. They'd get a room, and she would coach them on audition techniques for a little while. And that's how she would fill her dinner break. So we would carpool, but then I would steal the car. So we, we could kind of manage it, but we would each basically do four jobs a day. Wow. <laughs> And how and how far into the future could you book work? I'm I'm lucky in that fact, and, and I and I and I say that with due respect to the grind. Is that one of the things I realized early was I got I lucked into a couple of things. One is I found myself to have a proclivity to action. Right. So very early on, when I I've struggled as a young actor, but once someone put a sword in my hand, suddenly it was a playable action. Right. I didn't understand subtext or how to say one thing and mean another thing. But the idea to strike, to smash, to push, to stab, to shove that all, it, which is interesting because I was not an athletic kid in any way. It was just something about swords that brought that out in me. Right. Right. Um, 
And so what that did was made me let me cut in line at Shakespeare Festival auditions because I might have competency with text, mm. but suddenly Act Five comes along and you want a Laertes that isn't going to kill the actor playing Hamlet, but is going to make Hamlet look better, elevate right. their game. And that's your job, so, right? Your job, yeah, your job so, is to make the Hamlet look good. Yeah, I'm a ringer, right? right? I've been brought in to help him have a great show and do my job in my show as well. Laertes certainly has some shit to do. Um, but what happened then is I started doing a lot more Shakespeare and Shakespeare is often done in repertory, both during the regular year right. and in the summer. So the contracts are longer. So I just completed a run at the American Shakespeare Center in 2019 that was a seven-month run, um, a three-month rehearsal and that cycle. And for- that was here on our coast, on the East yeah, Coast. Yeah, it was. It was over in your hood. It yeah, was yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I loved it there so much. Well, and, and the, the director, fall. so Sharon Ott loved you. She thought you were just a fantastic <laughs> actor. I tried to talk her out of it, but she really... You, well done, well done. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, had yeah. our moments, but I, I like working <laughs> with Sharon. Yeah, well, you were, you, and, were, you were great. I mean, you've, you, you say you didn't, you didn't know subtext and all that, but you've really grown into a fantastic actor. I would certainly say that I've aged into this skill. I call myself a blue collar actor um, because I'm not a classically trained actor. I'm a, I, I was trained because I was able to get in the room early as a younger actor, be in the room with great directors and great actors. And I think I'm, I'm the equivalent of the student that just needs to be doing it, right? So I need to play the servant with no lines, make a massive choice that causes the entire rehearsal to stop when they tell me not to do it again. Right. Um, so instead of your teachers telling you not to do that, I'll just make that mistake for myself. Right. Well, that is, but that is actually classical training, right? Before sure. there were, before there were universities back. and stuff, right? Back in the day, you're apprenticing. You're the guy, you know, second exactly. school carrier and you move your way up. Yeah, I'm and, a journeyman, right? Yeah, yeah. So. So, and I'm still to this day, one of the first things I want to do is learn the names of the people with no lines, because I don't ever want to forget where that came from. And I also remember what it was like to have John Hutton, a resident actor at the Denver Center for 20 seasons, who I've been watching since I was a kid, turn to me and go, hey, Jeffrey, do you think Claudia should drink heavily in this scene or just have one <laughs> And that feels good, drink? Right? Yeah. And he's asking me that question, so I feel involved. I secretly, I know John. John and I were actually just about to do a two-hander together, which was canceled, which sucks. But John was asking me that so I would feel involved. I don't think John really was invested in uh, the he's, he's bringing you in. He's deliberate. Yeah, deliberate. and like that's what we're supposed to do. Like is to, when, you, when I direct a play, I'm like, how do I make sure every character in this scene feels like there's a reason that they're there? Because there is a reason they're there. Um, so yeah, I guess, so what happened to me was the, the sword fighting got me into the Shakespeare festivals. The Shakespeare festivals got me to longer contracts. And essentially, I now pre-routinely cycle between six and seven month rep contracts, which means that job search is a little further out. So traditionally, I can book, I'm always booked 12 months out. And, and, if, and in a good year, I'm booked 18 months out. Nice. Um, well, so this last year, so let's, let's, let's transition yeah. out of the good times. Yeah. Which were, which were grinding times, right? I mean, that's so. Oh, of, they were hard. My body has enjoyed this rest. <laughs> right. Well, but, and you're also, you're rehabbing your, your ankle. Absolutely. So what happened mm-hmm. with that? Uh, that's a Shakespeare-related injury. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You start to learn as you get older, and if you're paying attention to other actors, the first thing they usually complain about, well, there's a few things. Housing, um, right. the dressing room location. But they, they fight for good shoes. They fight for good shoes. And you start to realize why as you get older, because you're putting repetitive action mileage on your body that is not unlike being an athlete. You know, you start to realize when you're directing a play that maybe having all the 70 year olds kneel to the king is not a great idea for them. <laughs> um, but other directors don't remember right. that. So uh, I was playing Mark Anthony. It's a small cast production at ASC. ASC is an American Shakespeare Center, an amazing place to see and do Shakespeare. It's a natural setting with um, candelabra. Oh, they're electric lights, but they're just candelabras. Right. There's no lights, there's no sounds, um, there's no sets. It's just actors in costume telling stories. But the story I wanted to tell was that Mark Anthony was rushing off to a battle where he thought he was going to die. And I felt Mark Anthony needed to do that with alacrity and authority. So I was bypassing the three steps and just leaping down to the stage floor and going on. Ultimately, a three foot drop, not a right. You know, I'm not really worried about it. But seven month run, I finally just created enough repetitive stress in that stride in cheap combat boots that eventually I kind of ruptured my Achilles. Ah. And by kind of, I mean, I did. Uh, and then I just kept acting on it because to quit acting was to not have income. So I just played through the pain. So you did that in the middle of the run? Yeah, I did it early in the run, frankly. Um, and we got new boots, got new insoles. I certainly didn't jump off the stage anymore. I did a much longer warm up. I was able to kind of maintain it, but it was a work related injury that was slowly getting worse. I was growing a bone spur and it was going to become a permanent limp. And as much as I like Treasure Island, 
I don't really want to be stuck in pirate plays for the rest of my life. Right, so I right. took this break to fix well, it. Well, and you mentioned but, you mentioned something else. I mean, being a professional actor is in a lot of ways um, like being an athlete because you're on. Yeah. Right. It doesn't it doesn't matter at a regular job. You 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 do the job, and if you're not if you're not feeling it that day, you put the work off. Maybe you do a little bit, but in the theater, much like in professional sports, when the time comes, you're on. We and, play hurt. I mean, just yeah. like athletes do, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying we're, I can now jump on the field and compete with athletes no more than they could do a soliloquy with me. But um, we both will push our bodies to the extremes for the people watching. And we both will, will, if we're injured, continue to play because the whole team counts on you. You can't did be you, Mark Anthony and call out. No, you know? did you? No, not really. Well, I, I, I uh, broke my foot one time doing a show. And uh, the doctor was like, um, you know, your understudy is going to have to go on. And I was like, you don't, you don't actually know anything about theater. You just, you just saw this on TV because, because <laughs> most, most semi-professional theaters or even, you know, low level, full professional theaters don't, they don't have the money for. Uh, no. And even if you had understudies, like I had an understudy, but like it's, a, he's in the cast. So the right. domino effect goes, he goes up, another person goes up, another person comes in, half of them don't know the lines and are carrying scripts and the whole play falls apart. And yeah, you're hurt. And I, as I get older, I'm telling you, if I was really sick, I wouldn't play now. I, I've pushed my body. I've at least twice in my life pushed myself too far with injury as a result that affected my ability to make a living because right. I broke it. Because your job's not going to be there with you when you look for the next one. Right. So when I did Comedy of Errors at Colorado Shakespeare Festival, I was playing both Antiphali and didn't really have the vocal training that my, cl- my teammates had in a thousand seat outdoor amphitheater. I just screamed my voice out to blood. And no one pulled me because no one was going to cancel the show. They were letting me choose to cancel the show. If I would like to, I could cancel. But it was like, on you. Yeah, do that with a thousand people out there. Right. <laughs> you know? So um, before, before we move on, did you have, because, because you, you have to be on, did you have any sort of uh, routine or warm-up sort of standard? How would you, I always find, depending on the part, right, if it's an easy part, you can just step into it and go. But if it's yep. a if it's an emotionally demanding part, you've got to sort of get yourself into that space. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, the, the danger is sometimes we can be interpreted as method, right? That we become the character. And while that is not true, when I first started as an actor, I didn't do any of that stuff. My warm up was, I'd say a cigarette and a cup of coffee, but I don't smoke. It's right. probably a candy bar and a cup of coffee. You know, I, I was like, look at all these warm up idiots. What a waste of time. Right. And then you get older and your instruments start to become stressed a little bit, both physically and emotionally. And you realize I do have to place myself for a show. So when we were doing Anthony and Cleopatra, sorry, Caesar and Cleopatra, George Murray Shaw, and I'm playing Rufio, just a wise ass in the corner, which is essentially how I live my life. And I have no fights. Right. I can just walk into that show at half hour, talk shit until I put on my sweatpants and walk on stage. Because the character is very close to who you are in that moment. Yeah. And, and not, but Mark Anthony is a hot mess of a human being. And I was playing him across two shows. And actually, each show required a different warm up. Like my physical prep for Julius Caesar was big because I had to do a lot of just big vocal work to do Friends, Romans, Countrymen and give it justice. You got to effing. Yeah, have the, the audience have knows the, the audience knows that speech. They're not actually yeah. they're not actually listening to you. They're watching. No, they're speaking along with me until right. they realize two lines into it they don't know any more of it, <laughs> um, and don't really know where I'm going with it. Um, but then when I was doing Mark Anthony later, who's later in his life and physically breaking down, that was actually when I had to do a physical warm up. That's when I suddenly had to do yoga and breath and pick a speech. I pick a different speech every night to just drop into it and breathe through it. And re-listen to it, re-hear it. Right. To make sure I was finding everything in it and that there wasn't more to find. So I'd basically do a mini rehearsal on one speech while I did some yoga. And that turned out to be the trick. But every show has its own warm-up and the trick is figuring out what it is. Right? What it is for that character in that time yep. and what you have. There's no like, I have friends who have like the thing they do every show. And for me, it's like, this show needs, I need to listen to music before this show. This show, I need to shoot the shit and get my cat, my, my dressing roommates to laugh is what right. this show is all about. Um, when Talbot was leading a warrior, I would gather with my warriors before every show. And we talk about how we're going to kick the shit out of France, you know, right. um, just, you find Some your own, guys. each show demands its own rituals, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, that's perfect. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I dig that. All right. Mm-hmm. So in the before times, until this year, <laughs> until this year. So you're in the before times, you're working, you're coming up with your own, um, sort of process. You're, uh, and you're grinding it out. You're living, you're living the life, uh, you know, you're doing everything that we all 
wanted to do as working actors. And then, right, um, when stuff shut down, it didn't shut down like slowly. It came crashing down in a period of a few days. Yeah, it was a garage door. And if you were on the, and you just felt like you just, you sprinted to the safety of your home as it slammed shut behind yeah. you. Yeah. I, I'd never, I never have, nor do I, would I hope to ever see that level of complete elimination of your career over a weekend. The, the, the description I heard today was it was like looking both ways before crossing the road and then getting hit by a submarine. Yeah. Both. And there's two submarines heading opposite directions. Right. right. Like, I remember because, you know, when you're in rehearsal, we were in we were in a rep rehearsal. So we'd opened up Murder on the Orient Express, which I had directed. And then we had opened up Midsummer Night's Dream where I, and I was playing bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. And then we were rehearsing a third wonderful play called Small Mouth Sounds, which is essentially a silent play. There's virtually there's about four pages of dialogue in the whole play. And it's about a bunch of people. And this is this is back in March. Retreat. This is in yeah. March. This is March of 2020. Right. And we were going to open on Friday. So Thursday, we were doing previews, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we could tell stuff was going on. But like, I'm not as tapped into the news when I'm in tech, you know, like I'm I'm basically eating, sleeping and going to the theater, walking the dog. And that's about it. So we knew something. We knew it was bad. We knew what COVID was, but we didn't realize how prevalent it was, where it was going. And then so Thursday night became um, uh, no talk back because the the audience there was only about twenty people. Normally we see two twenty, and previews are normally sold out. But people wow. who had tickets were already realizing. I don't think we want to go to the theater. Um, as I've described to many people, I'm in the business of gathering old people in small spaces right. for long indoors, periods indoors, of time. Next to each it's other. a really bad pandemic business model. Yeah, and yet and yet the theater has lived through many pandemics. Right? I mean, this True. is this is not the end of us. Hell, we've we've lived through plagues, That's right. um, and Shakespeare wrote during it. So I think yeah. we're going to see a great renaissance. That's my belief. But in the moment, in it, right. to set, we got closed on opening night. So, um, so you're so you go to the theater, and you're, there's a show going on, and you you look out, and the the crowd is sparse. And yeah, you're, and you're aware that something's going on, and then and then what? You got you got. A and call? I think we were thinking what was going to happen was we were going to get through opening and then see what happened, right? right? And we just got to open, and we'd already canceled the opening night party, and then we were going to do a toast backstage with just us. Then we canceled that, um, and then we got the call Friday morning that we were just we were going to shut down for three weeks. Okay, um, and, and it was still weeks, and it was still three weeks, right? That was the, that yeah. was the idea that we and get they kept us on contract for three weeks. Um, they cool. paid us to stay home. That's cool. Um, which they did not have to do in any way, shape, or form. And few, in fact, few theaters did, except for where they were contractually obligated. But this theater was like, we'll keep paying you. What, what theater was that? Let's give them a shout this out. This is the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities, where we were doing this rep. That's awesome. Um, and that's another one where I'm directing, acting, and fight directing. So I got a lot of irons in the pot there. Right. <laughs> um, and a lot of investment. And not only did we lose that, but within 48 hours, by the time we got to Monday, both Jess and I had lost the entirety of all the work we'd scheduled through the end of the year, which totaled out to about a hundred grand. So a couple days. In two days, um, everything from to December 31st was gone. Holy crap. Um, now some of those were gone, meaning they said, we don't know yet. These are all maybes. And then they fell as we got closer, but they were all pushed to the, we don't know if we're going to do them pile like that. And that included, I was directing Macbeth at the Illinois Shakespeare Festival. We were in, we cast it and we were in last round of designs that was shelved. I was teaching at the national stage combat workshops. That was shelved. I was doing a two hander with John Hutton, woman in black that was shelved and our future rep that would have started in December. We already knew was going to collapse down. So December was gone. So, and then I was teaching two classes at the Denver center. Those were gone. And then my DU class in the fall didn't book because the students, enough students weren't coming back to justify the class. And those are just the big ones. And then there's all those little $500 gigs here and there that you have one shot visits, master classes gone. Just, and for Jess, it was the exact same thing. Every play, every writing, it was all gone. So it, it rocked us so hard that I don't think we did anything for four weeks because we were just trying to figure out. Right. What do you do when the host organism dies or at least hibernates suddenly? Right. You know, and you haven't saved, you've saved nuts for the winter. I've, we saved enough for a season, but we didn't, we don't have enough in the bank for two years to not work. You know, we're not, we're artists. Right. Right. Well, and also, you, you know, you said you were diversified and you were as an artist, you were diversified, but the entire, uh, the entire field collapsed. 
Yeah, that's the thing. Is it, I, I kind of felt like teaching would still subsist, and it has, but it has struggled as well. And a lot uh, in, in many places, it's where it's really hit as adjunct, which was my hustle because right. adjuncts all I could do because I can only teach one class a term, and it's got to be in the morning because I got to be free in the afternoons and evenings for rehearsals, and it just wiped out adjunct work. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Those are, I mean, people cut the jobs that they could cut. Right. And if they yeah. have, and the people who have jobs are now teaching two jobs for the one job they have, yeah. you know, and, and it, not only are they teaching two jobs for the one job, they're teaching to Zoom and they're teaching live in many cases at the same time and, and try and serve that many masters in one so teaching how do you, class. How do you yeah. process that? I mean, emotionally, how do you process that? Just your whole world. Barren, man. It was really dark. Um, not in terms of a self harm way or being unhealthy necessarily, but. There, it was, there was an inability to sleep because it went pretty quickly from going, this is going to be a bad two weeks to a bad month to a bad quarter to a bad year to knowing that 2021 ain't going to be a cakewalk. And when you see sports teams that can afford the studies to say how long it's going to take, right. saying it's going to take five years until they have a full stadium again, even if we get a vaccine, well, my, my small union theater company that is bootstrappy is is not anywhere near competitive on that level so you're right so you're looking at going i'm late middle age and can i reinvent myself to a new career and i don't want to right, right? like i worked really hard to get the one i have it's not wasn't easy to get here and i don't want to now just suddenly go into the business of x you know whatever right. that whether that business is peripheral like a lot of actors I know have gone into heavier into recording, audiobooks work. Right. Um, that's out there, certainly. Um, podcasting, although it's not exactly lucrative, as we all know, unless right. you're a top top dog in it. But it's still, you know, it, it fills the time and lets you feel like a creative artist. So I think my wife and I were looking at, one, what are we going to do to sustain our income level? And two, what are we going to do to feel like artists? And the, and the fact remained that we knew those were going to separate. To a yeah. Extent. So are you, are you looking at, are you like, you must be looking at mortgage and bills and trying to just figure out what the bare minimum and where the, yeah. And I think, bottom out. you know, the best part for Jess and I is that we live simply because we've chosen a lifestyle that's a low income lifestyle that makes us happy. Right. Like, I mean, I think the thing that we all should hope for in our life is to have a job that brings us joy and happiness. I mean, we loved our jobs. We still do. They're just not there right now. Um, so we have our mortgage isn't super high and our savings were fairly robust and our monthly expenses aren't particularly crippling. So we were able to our 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 monthly the, the the nut we need to make a month to live is sustainable on unemployment while it's working. Right. What so about for the, us, what about we're not health insurance? We're able to live on. Health insurance you're uh, getting for the union. Well, that's right? great. We get our health insurance through our union as actors, but our health insurance is a union, and our union itself is deeply, deeply hurt by this, right? So right, right. right. That means our health insurance, which for anyone who doesn't know, Actors' Equity, the way you're in health insurance is by booking weeks. And the amount of weeks you work qualifies you for three months, six months, or a year of health insurance. And, and, you, can't, and you can't bank it. You can't say No, like, you I've can got, bank like a little, like right. the look back 18 months for 12, that kind of system, right? Yeah, but, but you, you can't, can't book, bank you it can't. Let's say, you have a, let's say you have a five-year period where you work really hard. You don't suddenly get five years worth of health insurance yeah. after no. that. Yeah. And, and nor necessarily should it, because I understand that, right? Because really what's happened with Actors' Equity is anyone on an equity contract is contributing to health. But if you didn't book enough weeks, those contributions stay with equity and go to those of us who've made them. So it's a, it's a weird, it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's definitely like it, it benefits those who work the most. And in 2019, I booked 54 weeks of equity work Nice by overlapping two long running jobs by two weeks. But that still means come July, 2021, I'm out. <laughs> like I booked that much, but it'll still be gone. But our union, because we're not getting any income because we pay money or well, we, we pay into our union when we're working and we pay dues. But primarily it's the cut the two and a half percent of your check that keeps equity going and Broadway especially. Right. Well, when all that goes down, our health insurance went from thirty three dollars a month, which is laughably low, but right. appreciated nice. and struggling artists to one hundred a month. So it tripled. Um, while we we're on a contract, like meaning like I was committed for a year and my health insurance next month tripled. Um, it also then they extended the had to up the weeks. So now you need to work. Now I need to work instead of uh, 19 weeks to get a year's worth of health insurance. I need to work 32 or rather I need to work 16 weeks every six months. And this is all while that, the theaters are all closed. And there is no work. Right. So so we're all invariably getting bumped off because equity is also creating a standard that's very, very high for performances to be okay, trying to figure out where liability goes for us as performers, right? I'm in a play, I have a stage kiss. 
How are we going to handle that with COVID? Are we cutting it? Are you expecting me to do it? When, when one of us tests positive, does the entire cast get to quarantine? Or just the, There's a lot of questions right. with how to handle live performance in a pandemic. And the answer is the safest thing to do is not do it, which is what pre- predominantly most of the theaters chose to do, certainly for 2020, is you just, the union theaters just went, it's not worth it. Not just dealing with the union, but like also just dealing with the safety of the audience, the safety of their crew. Right. This It's just becomes a loss gain you know there's no there's no gain there so let's uh, let's let's so let's let's dig ourselves out of this hole a little bit yeah let's so, go for it. um now you you have been working right i mean you've been yeah doing, yes you've been doing i mean a little it, bit a little bit online yep so what is that like theater it's online? it's crazy it is crazy um if you think that theater is a collaborative art form, the reason that most of us, I think, certainly me, is not a painter or a sculptor is because I don't want to go crazy in my studio alone with a lump of clay. It's just not how I'm wired. I need to be in a room where I feed off the energy of the people I'm building, not yeah. unlike a sports team, right? You watch, you watch their, their body language. You hear their breathing. You yeah. hear their laughter. And more importantly, Aaron, I look them in the goddamn eye and I can make a connection with a human being by looking them in the eye. And I cannot look anyone in the eye on zoom no i can look in the camera so you feel like i'm looking you in the eye right but or i can actually. look at you but that's it right and and it sounds really weird but the entire structure of acting is about that connection and in some plays where we talk to the audience it's compounded because it's the same thing there right and when you create theater on zoom you also remove the audience's input completely so I'm holding for a laugh that I have no idea is happening. Right. And even if it is happening, it's happening in the houses where it's happening. But the other houses that didn't think it are funny are just waiting for me to talk again. So you've got this tin can string problem with your audience. And then you've got just the tech problems of performing that anyone can miss an entrance if their Wi-Fi goes down. Oh, yeah. And And you're doing redundancies and everything else. So what my wife created was this marvelous piece of holiday theater about nine family members. We cast pods, me and her in one screen, a family with a child in another screen, a couple in another screen, and then two soloists. We had nine actors and five boxes. And we were able to do a live play that was on Zoom. So we weren't denying that we were on Zoom. Um, We were able to do a live play where we had redundancies of how to get back on if we got booted. We had ring lights and box lights and boosted Wi-Fi signals. And we had the Arvada Center building props and pulling costumes and using our own clothing. And we were able to build a 70-minute play. Jess used the breakout functions in Zoom. So Acts 2 and Act 4 were choose your own adventure. When the actors left, you could pick which one you wanted to follow. That's really cool. And whichever one you followed gave you a slightly different play, though the story was the same because Acts 1, 3, and 5 were seen by everybody. That's genius. But Acts 2 and 4... You, you had three to choose from each way, which meant you have one, two, three, four, five, six. You have nine different ways you can see the play. Yeah. And you have 12 scenes of which you only see four every night. And it was like Sleep No More and House and Garden, which is a play right, right, or right, even right. Noises Off. But she also wanted to feel live. So she began the show by talking to people as they logged in and like acknowledging them. And then we had improv sections in the scenes where we had asked the audience questions on chat because the given circumstance of the scene was that it was online. And so... We were able to create as close as possible to a live theatrical experience. It was financially successful. We employed five union actors, four non-union actors. We had about 100 to 150 people a night log into Zoom to That's watch this. And the audience was all over the country. I had one of my friends watch from Vladivostok. <laughs> um, <laughs> We had people watching from Wales, we had people watching from Canada, and we had people watching from every time zone all over the country because your audience for Zoom theater is huge. You just got to convince them to come see it. But there's, uh, you don't need to buy a plane ticket and come see me to see my play. So that was pretty cool. Ultimately, you could even cast actors from anywhere in the world. As long as you can survive on the time zone you're shooting, you could, you could do it, you know? So it was really fun to create some live theater on Zoom and, and feel a rehearsal process and a, and a run. So we could yeah. evolve over a run as opposed to a canned one shot only. I like recorded. that so much better than the type we've been doing, um, you know, like, uh, yeah. uh, what's the, she kills monsters. I the, thought that the turned out pretty cool. It's <laughs> visuals. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. The visuals you you can, but it, but it, it's like, a. but a lot of, a lot of the theater then becomes like a poor man's television. Yeah. Right. That's what it is. I call it cheap TV. And I'm like, we can't compete with Netflix, man. Right. Like right, that right. stuff is produced and better than our, we, we can compete. Our friends will watch it. 
right. are, are, are subscribers who just want to, will do the, I bought a ticket to support you, but like, you can't exist on that. You need to right. have a commercial product that people are willing to Well, it's got to be something, it's got to be something that doesn't feel like less so that as you're watching it, you're not always aware of what you're missing. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think part of it is the truth of acknowledging the format you're in. Like you could do Hamlet on zoom, but he's got to know he's on zoom. You can't right. pretend he's in a scene with people who are in other boxes. It's not the Brady Bunch. It doesn't work. But Shakespeare can be put in any concept. So I could totally put a Shakespeare play on a Zoom screen. Right. Um, Jess and I can drop green screens and we could get two, you know, if we get va- vaccinations, we could have two quick change artists with masks on and we could do a two person play with green screen spin in chairs and do a, I want to do one where I have like. I'm on Zoom on two devices, and this one over here is on, and that's Iago's inner monologue. So I'm talking to you, but when Iago, when I'm talking, I'm in the scene, in the scene, and then when Iago talks to you, he turns live to this screen. Oh, that's cool. I think there's, I think there's ways to keep us going, and I also think this format of online theater is not going to go away. I mean, it's not like it didn't exist before the pandemic, but if you are immune compromised and still want to see some theater, I can do Christmas Carol this way. If well, I, adapt I mean, before it to before the, the pandemic, I was, I know, I worked on a number of plays where. Um, they were trying actively to try and figure out how to make it interactive online, right? They would yeah. be, they'd project things on the screen or they would have some sort of live interaction with some text or something. Everyone was trying to figure it out because they knew that, you know, everyone walks in the theater with that thing in their hand, right? They have the, yeah. they have the phone and they were trying. And as you say, theater is an interactive thing. So they're, they're trying to figure out how to do that. And now everyone's been forced to do it. Yeah, well, to be in the theater while I'm watching you live and expect me to pull up my device and interact with it is just a much different experience than I found that you're already on your phone watching it. Right. So I already know you're there. So if I say reach in the upper right-hand corner, tap on chat, if you want to give us some baby name suggestions, we'll discuss them with you. And then the audience feels like this is really happening. And what we're trying to do is enhance the connection that this is live, you are live, and, and, and the symbiotic relationship of audience and performer is necessary for it to be theater. It, right. it, it's the sh- it needs to be a shared human experience. And to me, theater needs to be live for that to happen because a tripod recording of my play, you know, I've got a full tripod recording of Murder on the Orient Express. No one but my mother or aunt wants to watch that. Right, right. You know? I mean, it's it's a, it's a at a distance and it's, it's yeah. not nearly the same thing. And there was professionally produced filming of theater, but it was in pre-COVID time that they filmed it. Like they, had, they ran it up. They did a full run in front of it. The One Man, Two Governors, great right. example. Fully produced with a live audience. It's amazing. I enjoyed it, but I still could pause it and go to the bathroom. Right. Well, and also they have the camera. They have a close-up, right? I mean, you act yep. different in a close-up. You can get a more emotional thing than you have. And, a, and they have to act to those different things. Whereas, so, so really, live theater over zoom one has to acknowledge it's on zoom two has to have massive redundancies and three has to have an opportunity for the audience to really truly believe that it's live right um even if whatever tricks you want to use to do that is fine but they need to believe that on the other end of this camera is someone right now sweating and doing quick changes that they just barely made right um, right right there's an energy to it that is palpable and and my a danger question, a we, danger to yeah it. and when we created this particular piece it was it was a family comedy but you know they lost the 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 patriarch he's dead and we don't say why but we're clearly during we don't talk about COVID or pandemic but we're clearly apart saying it's not safe to travel like we're allowing that to be filled in by the audience whether or not that person died of that or not but then in the comments at the end when we would do chats people like I lost my father this year and I can't tell you what it meant to me to watch people tell a story about loss and hope when I feel like I haven't had any you know, and when when we get people who, so I did not think we could emotionally affect people through this, this. Form. But you're saying you did. I know we did. Cause I don't think they, they weren't just my friends. You know, these are complete strangers who are, which is what theater does because it creates this shared empathy and human experience, which is why it has survived all these things and why it can't be defeated. Because I believe that it will adapt to the mediums available to it in the time it's in. And, right. and what we have right now is this. And I think when we move back to stages, which I think we will, I think this will still exist. I could go live to any classroom and do a show from my home. Um, all the actors loved it because they could, one, wear pajama pants. And two, when the play was I'm over, wearing them right they now. were home. Right, right. <laughs> well, and everyone also, I mean, there's some more equipment, right? I have lights here. You have lights. Mm-hmm. You've got a screen behind you. You're talking yeah. into a nice microphone. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, some, um, there's some stuff we didn't have before the pandemic that we now have the ability to... Uh, 
to shoot yeah, into there, there's we we're geared up at this household let me tell you man i got ring lights and box lights and microphones and shock absorbers and i got a, this one's on a boom like i'm nice. an actor with a boom yeah what man the heck you know <clears throat> it also does orc voices but i haven't figured it out yet oh oh <laughs> it's a, it's a gaming it's a gaming mic <laughs> Oh, it's a game, Mike. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So let's, uh, I, this is great, man. I really appreciate it. I enjoy this. talking to you about it. So um, uh, by way of rapping, by mm-hmm. way of rapping. So we went from the before times to the terrible times to the maybe what the future might hold times. So now if we can jump times, right, to leap over times, to uh, uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice about this career that you've come into. Um, so let me, let me preface this. Yeah. You know, we talk to, when people want to get in theater, we, we talk to them a lot about the transferability of the skills and, right, you know, you're, you're going to learn how to interact with people. You're going to learn business skills. You're going to learn the absolute nature of a deadline. You're going to learn interprofessional, uh, you know, yeah. work, uh, interdisciplinary work, all this sort of stuff. But when, you know, when the whole bottom fell out of everything, there was some truth in that. As you know, you, you can get jobs in other fields, but it is sure. a whole other field. And everyone else in every other field at the moment is also trying to get work in these other fields. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so some of the things that I think we told ourselves in the pre-COVID times, I think were partially right and partially lies. Um, but with, with, with the ability to now know what the world can be at its, not at its worst, but at, at its, you know, at a, a fairly low uh, at, a, at a fairly uh, low nadir. Um, if you could go back and talk to yourself about the future, this path that you were going to take, is there any advice you would give yourself? Or, to rephrase the question slightly and answer either version, um, the people who listen to this podcast, you know, uh, both of them, are uh, they're, they're artists who are trying, or, or people who are uh, entrepreneurial trying to make a living in this new gig economy, trying to, you know, figure out, as you said, how to, how to reinvent themselves. A lot of us got into the arts because we love the arts. And then you realize I have to make my mortgage payment. So how do you, you know, how do you make all these things come together? So there are people right now who are in the exact same boat or some similar boat. Do you have any insight in any way, shape or form that you would give your former self or anything that anybody's listening now? I think, it's a profound question because, of course, ultimately, there's always that parental fear that I can you can't make your kids learn your your mistakes. Like they've got to live and do their own mistakes. Well, you so can like hit that, them. You can just keep yeah, hitting. Yeah, you definitely can. You can make consequences happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you know, like I can only retcon my personal self so far, but I certainly know that when I say I'm blue collar, I mean I have a high school diploma, right? That's what I built my career off of. Was tangible, tactile, real physical skills that I could bring into a rehearsal room, not diplomas, right. um, which I learned pretty quickly had nothing to do with getting hired. Right. Like, right. It's, I mean, can you do the you, job? Are you good? Yeah. And, and, and we you know the role I've always said is like, I don't really care how you got in the room, like meaning short of breaking in illegally, <laughs> but like you've been cast, you're in this play. Are you going to make the most of it? Are you going to make the most of the opportunity you have? And I don't mean like overdo it, overact, try to steal the play. I mean, literally, are you going to come early to rehearsal? Or are you going to leave late? Are you going to observe? Are you going to politely ask questions? Um, are you going to use the opportunity to watch other artists at work and see if you can learn from their mistakes while you watch them make them right. and learn from their victories and go, how did that work? So, but I would say that one of the things that it's easily missed if you want to have a career in the arts, certainly as a stage actor, is that you need business skills. Um, and I don't mean just balancing your goddamn checkbook, you know, <laughs> like I, I know that that's hard too, but that's not the level I'm talking about, like how to promote yourself, how to present yourself online, um, how to communicate with businesses. Um, so I have no idea how to do all that. And I've kind of learned it. I certainly read Dale Carnegie, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and did my right, best right, to navigate right. rooms and, yeah. And some of that was natural skill that was in, in the way I interact with the world, you know, that extrovert part of how do I connect with people? Cause that's what I wanted to be as an artist, but I really wish I'd known more about marketing. the simple things of like taxes and marketing and, and, and how to present yourself and, and how to find, how to find opportunities to get on stage. Cause it's not all just going to the goddamn audition, you know? Um, so that's one of them. And the other is the other advice I have, which is which is partially because it worked for me. But I always tell young actors when they ask me is one, 
There is a level of this that is a calling. If you had a great time doing this in high school, that does not mean it's good for you as a career. In the same way you can play football in high school, that doesn't mean you necessarily want to go to the NFL. Right. And theater can be in your life whether it pays your mortgage or not. Right. So in my twenties, I did community theater and I really enjoyed it. I was quite happy with it. Well, and it feels like it's a, it's a whole different gig, right? Doing it, doing it because you're with your friends and it's a social activity is a totally different thing than grinding it out. It's, it's, it's hobbyist versus profession. You may like ultimate Frisbee, but that may mean you play in a pickup league or it may mean that you push yourself because you want to become a national champion of it. Right. Right. Um, And really to make a living on the stage, you're going to want to, you're going to need that level of that Michael Jordan level of drive. In, 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 in absentia of talent, at a minimum, you're going to need to be able to control the things you can control, which is be off book before everybody else, be early, be kind, be prepared, like the, the, those Boy Scout principles, right? right. Um, but for me, it was diversify, right? So the way I got in the room as an actor is as a fight director. The way I got in the room as a director was because I was an actor and a fight director that was collaborating with all the departments at these theaters already. And then they went, well, we should just right. let you look at a whole play. Right. And you, you already know what the I'd stage to... looks like and the lighting looks like. You, you've you've yeah. clearly already learned these things. So like, so for me, I, I can get into theater as an actor. I can get into theater as a director. I can get into theater as a fight director. So I have three different ways to get a job at different theater companies, which allows me to diversify my portfolio. As we discussed earlier, when your whole portfolio collapses, that doesn't help me very much. I, I forgot to diversify into fast food delivery. Um, that was not <laughs> right. on my list. But, right. I, but for young actors, I think... You have to choose your calling, but I always am re- re- reticent to, to suggest anyone specialize at, in the age uh, when you're 21 years old, right? You should, if you think you can't sing, learn to carry a tune. If you think you can't fight, learn to do a basic parry and fall down. If you think you can't do Shakespeare, learn how to do one good speech. Because my friend Larry Heck used to say, if you can do Shakespeare and you can carry a tune, you'll do Christmas Carol, you'll do Summer Shakespeare, you'll do a spring musical. That's your health weeks and that's a living. Right. So the trick is to, you know, like I very early on went, well, I can't really sing. And of course I can, I just can't sing as well as those kids could. And because when I was measuring myself against them in undergrad, I was like, well, I'll just back off because I will never beat them. Not realizing that there were parts for me in musicals that aren't their skills. They're my skills. Right, right, right. There's always an acting role in a musical, even one that sings, that talks, sings their way through it. And it's the same reason there are roles in Shakespeare for people who are also doing the musical that summer. I've had them in the Shakespeare play. They're new at it. We pull you through and you build those skills. And maybe next time you'll, you'll get something bigger. So the, the importance of knowing that you should know how to do basic tap, whether you think you're ever going to be in a tap player or not, you don't need to be able to do a solo, but to abscond from learning something entirely, to decide before you've learned something that you don't think you need that skill. Because you're not going to be the best at it is irrelevant. Yeah, because it's not that kind of competition because we're also individuals and we're going to fulfill different things. And one of the things I learned as a director was I started bringing in all my best friends to audition, but it didn't mean I could cast them because you still have to figure out what's right. And that made me feel so much better as an actor because I stopped thinking I wasn't as good as the person who got it. I just wasn't right for it according to their lens. Even if I can speak to myself and say, I'm right for that part. Right. I could still, you know, I knew when I was chasing um, Cassius at CSF many years ago that I was right for it, but I wasn't. They, they, they cast a really talented female in that role, which allowed me to also realize, oh, they were going to code right. that role that way. And I can let go of my competition of that role. I can be, I can be supportive of that actor. And then I played Octavius, ended up having a great time. Um, then years later, playing Mark Anthony, I've got an Octavius standing next to me who's teaching me things that Octavius can do that I had no idea. Right. Um, so we all learn from each other, right? So that I think, but for me, if I was to go back, it's one is it's stupid, but take a fucking business class. Um, and, and, and An entrepreneurial business yourself. class. Yes, that level. Because it, you're going to be your own business. You yourself are a business. Right. And the other is to diversify your skills and not make a decision too early about what you think you're going to need. Uh, I wish I knew more. I, I'm more, more interested in European and American history now because of my work as a theater artist requires me to know it. So, right. but I, I could have maybe not just skipped all that stuff when I was younger and maybe loaded some of it in earlier. Right. So first, in, so first in the room, last out at rehearsal, which is sort of the yeah. opposite of a lot of people I know who act, they don't, um, or who, who want to act, they don't actually do any work until they get cast. And what you're yeah, saying is that's not such a great idea. I don't really understand it. Like, I mean, I, I mean, as you get, the older actors you meet are memorizing before rehearsal starts because they know it takes longer. Like, 
I use memorization as a line. When I was in my 20s, I could learn it instantly. When I was in my 30s, I could learn it overnight. And now I'm in my 40s and, and, and it takes weeks. And Mark Anthony is not a role. I can't memorize both roles of Mark Anthony in an eight-week rehearsal process and open cleanly off book and know what the F I'm doing, right? So you have to prepare and you have to also be flexible in your preparation. It's like preparing for war, right? Like you, you got to, you have to make all these plans, but once it encounters the enemy, which could be your scene partner, your director, your playwright, or whatever your fight director, hits, right. you have to be able to bend and manipulate what you think you've discovered to meet what everyone else has discovered and trust that the director knows what the whole story is and trust that if they're editing you, it's, it's to the behest of the play, right. which is more important than your character. Well, I think that, so, that I think that prep. advice is also useful for people even outside of theater that idea of uh don't 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 shortchange yourself right away let the market decide what it is that you're going to be doing right and uh, olivia coleman just said in an interview last week in the guardian she was like take the role seriously not yourself um you know like don't don't get don't get airs because you have more lines it doesn't really mean any that's right. not what it is and also as actors we don't get paid by the line we're all getting paid the same so can't we all just work together right. um but yeah i think I think you're in control of that. Like when I see someone audition and they don't know their piece very well, I'm like, this audition, you signed up for this audition like three weeks ago. Right. Why, why would you then take this as an opportunity to show me you're not prepared? I'm not saying you can't have a fuck. I mess up. Like right. theater's a life of mistakes. We don't get to yell cut. I get that. But I can tell that you learn that in the car. And that seems like you're telling me that's how you'll rehearse the. Why would you think I would then think you would rehearse the play differently if I cast you? Right. That makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can control your prep. You can control your timeliness. These are human things that are, that are, that are doable. Well, and and there'll be, and then on the day when you can't, we forgive it because you, you've earned it. Right. Do <laughs> the know? best you can, but actually do the best you can. Yeah. And, 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 and then you earn the bad day that we all deserve to have. <laughs> right. But if you spend your bad day points every day for the first two weeks of rehearsal, you're telling me something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. First Why impressions, do that? first impressions matter, and uh, they really do. Yeah, and how? And, and the funny thing about being in theater—I don't mean to interrupt—is is that first impression day happens constantly, right? If you're doing a play every eight weeks, every two months, I enter a completely new room of a completely new group of people. Often, none of them, when I went into ASC. I had not met a single one of those human beings before besides Sharonot, who I'd fight directed an opera for 15 years ago. Right. So how you're going to be on, you, you got to learn names. You got to shake hands. You got to yes. And you got to not talk about yourself. You got to ask people questions about themselves. And that's a pretty good rule for your first day of rehearsal is to learn everyone's name and have asked everybody something about themselves. That's well, and I would say this, uh, so this studio is in a consulting company, and I would say that those things that you just said are also true in any business environment. You and I talked about this once many years ago, where I, when I was in, in management and I was in this insurance reference company in my 20s, traveling the country, meeting v vice presidents, setting up servers, and training employees to use it. So I was like teaching, um, art, being artistic, right. and dealing with finance and tech all at the same time. And they sent me to a management company. They're like, well, what's your objective with this project? Um, what is in your way that is preventing you from fulfilling this project? And how will you get what's in your way out of your way so you can fill, fill your project by deadline? And I was like, that's an acting class. Right, you just taught exactly everybody it. in here an acting class. It's exactly the same thing. They're just different different words. Yeah. And I, I was on the precipice of my 20 errands. Like I could have stayed in insurance because those skills we talked about as an actor were working for me in business. You know, yeah. like I was, I was successful. I had, I had way too much cash in the bank. It's how I bought the home I live in now as an artist. Um, but I wasn't happy. Was that know? true? And I, I mean, that's sort of my, that's my last yeah. question. I mean, cause yeah. when, uh, you used to come out to Chicago all the time and, yeah. uh, and you know, we'd hang out cause you were on the, but you were on the road all the time. Constantly. What was it? Yeah. Silver plume? Yeah, that was a company. That's good. That's good. That's my, mm -hmm. that's my, that's my memorization right there. That's it. I'm, I'm done for the rest of the day, <laughs> but, but you were, but you were on the road all the time. And yeah. you were meeting new people and you were doing all those things. Um, but you had more financial security. And if you hadn't gotten out of that, you probably wouldn't be in the same financial straits right now. I wouldn't. But obviously you can't. You can't that's only one quality to measure what brings you fucking right. joy. Because you still got to do um, the job every day. Yeah, you still got to get out of bed and want to go. And, and I think the hardest job to leave is not a job you hate. It's a job you like because you don't love it. Right. And, and, and why it took me all my twenties to leave Silver Plume because I was making money hand over. Because it was good enough. 
Yeah. And I made a deal with myself, which is what if I could make, if I could use this job as a shelter and I could ultimately on the side hustle of the evenings and weekends and using my vacation days, make six months, book six months of work and look at it. And if I put that money in the bank, could I pay my bills that I would quit? And the day I did the math was right about before I became a certified teacher in the Society of American Fight Directors is I went, I got six months of stage combat teaching and improvisation work and murder mystery work and Ren Faire work. And that's enough money. I don't need this job anymore. And that was the deal. So I quit. I walked, I didn't even like sleep on it. Like I was doing the math on a spreadsheet in my cubicle and I went, I did it. I'm going to go do it before I think, I don't want to think about it. That's actually, that's actually what I started this podcast for was to try and get at those stories, right? How do you reinvent how, if your job is good enough, but you have something else. uh, I mean, so uh, the original, somebody told me I should call this, don't quit your day job. (laughs) <laughs> because it's I true. Reinvent right? your day job. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's it, right? You don't. I mean, if you're if you still have to pay the bills, but if it's not filling you, fulfilling you, you gotta yeah. you gotta sort of hustle, side hustle until, and then. But but you did something brave then. You, I mean, you then made the leap. Well, you had to trust that six months was probably as far out as I was ever going to look as an artist. So because I wasn't looking for a full time teaching job at university, I was wanting to be a performer. Um, I was like, that's security. And the fact that over the last 20 years, it's grown from six months of security to 12 to 18 months of security shows you that that's about as far as you can plan in professional right. theater because they need to pick the season and they do it a year at a time. How did that so, feel? How did that feel when you quit emotionally? Um, you know, I'm really proud of that moment. And and I look back on walking in my car. And, and one of the things that was so interesting about it is I worked with those people for nine years full time. And I never spoke to another one again the day after I left. And it wasn't because I didn't like them. It's because our friendship was based on the fact that we were cohabitating as workers. We we weren't, none of those friendships, and some of them were as long as that nine years, ever carried beyond once in a while, I'd I'd see someone would be at a show and we'd be like, hey. But that decade of my life, gone, and no friendships from it. But my theater friendships, you, right. um, other artists that I've worked with, uh, Robert Wesley, Dale Gerard, were right. in my wedding party. You yeah, know, and we've been friends for twenty something years. Yeah, and like we don't create things very often. Uh, in fact, almost never. But but I that those tendrils run deep in the arts because it's a shared empathy of what it is to make this stuff, and that it takes a lot of heart to do it because that's why we're here. So when you so, quit, when you quit, yeah. did you feel a sense of elation? I mean, what, what was that actually feel like? Or was it scary? I think it felt to me at least, and I'm trying to remember something that happened when I was 29 and I've lived a life since 29. Right, right. Um, but in the last two decades, I would see it felt like closing a book and opening and starting a new book, like finishing a journal and going to the next journal. Or in Lord of the Rings, you've, you've wrapped the fellowship and we're moving into the two towers. And I think the pandemic is a good metaphor for two towers. So we're just waiting um, for the return of the king. I'm just waiting for those Urukai to turn around because they got no armor on their back, Aaron. I'm so, yeah, that's true. That's back. true. Well, on the third um, day, look to the look to the east. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but like, it, I, I wouldn't undo any of that. And, and like, yeah, it would have given me more financial security. But 20 years of misery, who would who would I be? You know, I, gee, it'd be, I, I'd love to own a boat and an RV. Don't get me wrong, but I don't want to hate my job or be unhappy at my job for fifty for weeks of the year so I can spend time on my toy for two weeks. Like. I, I have a, uh, be the best man at my wedding, the, the fantastic guy. He, uh, but he's a, a millionaire, he's a multimillionaire. And, uh, he, he used to, the thing, uh, he wanted to buy a camera one time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why don't you buy this really fancy one? He was like, no, cause I'm not going to use it all the time. And I'm going to feel like an asshole. <clears throat> you know, the thing is, and he said, you know, the thing is you still have to get up in the morning. You still have to do something. I mean, it's still how you fill your day, whatever it is. It's how you fill your day. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll tell you what, this pandemic really does make you reevaluate and try and understand what, what do you want to do to fill your day today? Right. You know, where do you want to put your energy? Because when you're always swimming, you know, when you're, when I'm doing 54 weeks in a 52 week year and fight directing and teaching around it, it's hard to stop for a second and go, am I, is that the direction I want to be headed? Is that what I want to do? You know, when I, I get to take this time to go, I need to direct more and act less. You know, my body needs it and my brain needs it. And I actually feel more rewarded by orchestrating the creation of a piece than leading it from within it. Um, I still enjoy them both, but I've had time to think about it. And I, I'm more inclined to read a book that's going to help me direct something than help me act. You know, so yeah, it's yeah. not that I feel like my acting doesn't have still room to evolve. It'll evolve until no one will let me do it anymore. But my directing 
it has plenty of room to evolve, and I see a massive horizon line for that. So, th- so that's that's like what the you horizon take this time line. to do. I think this yeah. last this last conversation about you quitting the job at Silverplume uh, was <laughs> worth the whole interview. I mean, for for me personally, it really was that that because you were there too. Like I remember, I remember. you know, no. we were friends at the time, and I had lots of disposable income and frequent flyer miles for for yeah. days, and um, but, but it wasn't worth it. Want, I wanted to make theater, you know, right. and and. And I didn't even know why, but now I know because being removed from an audience meant that I need to be a storyteller. Whether I'm a director, actor, or fight director, I, if I'm going to tell a story, I need someone to listen to it and I need them to be there. Right. And that's the next stage is to figure out how in 2021 we mitigate this and continue to. Right. Well, and, you know, maybe it's an theater. opportunity that if you're not, if it's good enough, you know, if you're happy and you're just surviving, that maybe this is an opportunity to look to the future and think, what do I want to try? What is my... Yeah. With 20 years left before I probably want to heavily decelerate my career, I'm like, what, what, what do I want to achieve? As a Shakespeare actor, there's a few I got to knock out first that I haven't had gotten to sink my teeth into yet. And um, I feel ready for. But I also... But, there's, but my list of plays I want to get my hands on is far longer. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, hey, man. This has been fantastic. I, I appreciate it deeply. I, I love talking to you and it's been a tough year, but it's nice to end it with a little success and feel like I believe the years ahead can't be what the year behind will be, which means there's hope and hope is a great motivator. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. What would you say? The horizon. Look to the horizon. Yeah. It is. It's, it's the Lord of the Rings and it's, and it's Shakespeare and it's, it's just chase something that's worth chasing. Yeah. You know? No, that's cool. Happy holidays, my friend. To you as well. And uh, to everyone listening, go to reinventionpodcast.com. There'll be transcripts of this and other free resources. Uh, Dude, it's so nice seeing you. Yeah, you're the best, man. I'm just going to hit off here and then we're going to keep talking. (laughs) 